something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The mystery of the $7 million Wells Fargo robbery in Connecticut two years ago apparently was partially solved today with the arrest of 13 people and a surprise disclosure. On August 30th, 1985, more than 200 federal agents descended upon dozens of locations across Puerto Rico and the continental U.S. The FBI raids began after dawn in San Juan and nearby cities. Eleven people were rounded up in Puerto Rico. Another was arrested in Dallas, one more in Boston. Thirteen suspected members of Los Macheteros and their associates were arrested in connection to the Wells Fargo heist. Among them, Juan Zagara, who learned of the indictment beforehand and fled to Mexico with his wife and kids. It didn't work. As Juan explains in the Last American Colony documentary, He was arrested on the same day at an airport in Dallas as he tried to sneak back into the United States. This guy followed me, had a big cowboy hat and cowboy boots, you know, so it was pretty noticeable. And then all of a sudden I I sense, you know, the guy with the cowboy boots here on one side and there's three other people, one, one, one female and two other guys around me. And he said, you're, you're under arrest for bank robbery. Los Macheteros leader Filiberto Ojeda Rios was met with a starkly different approach. Around six in the morning, a team of FBI agents converged on the apartment Filiberto shared with his wife in Puerto Rico. FBI records claim he emerged from the top of his staircase 
and engaged in a shootout with federal agents, leaving one man permanently blind in one eye. When Filiberto was forcibly taken out of his home nearly an hour later, the FBI said he was holding a pistol in one hand and an Uzi in the other. Eventually, the embattled Macheteros leader surrendered and was taken into custody. Four fugitives were also named in the indictment, including Victor Herrera. The arrest would mark the start of a long and complex legal battle, one that dragged on for years and raised questions about the limits of federal law, Puerto Rico's sovereignty, and the powers the President of the United States could wield. Previously on White Eagle, we did several role plays in motels. So there was going to be no question about him being able to immobilize the guy with the element of surprise and then take him down. They buy a loader out. They basically stuff it full of cash and they hide it. And they take Victor and they stuff him in a place behind the false wall. What the money did was corrupted the Macheteros. Some wanted to keep the money. They didn't want to send any more money to Cuba. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of more than 40 true crime books. What you were about to hear is the true story of a heist, one that funded an international independence movement and sparked an investigation spanning nearly four decades. This is White Eagle. From the start, the legal battles involving the Macheteros and their associates were contentious. To this day, the Wells Fargo case is still considered one of the longest and most complicated legal cases in the history of federal court. There was tremendous support and sympathy, or at least neutrality. So as a result, many of the big law firms in Hartford donated their lawyers to the Wells Fargo legal team. Ronald Kuby is a criminal defense and civil rights attorney who's been practicing law for the better part of 40 years. In 1985, Ron was fresh out of law school and off to a promising start, working the Wells Fargo case and training under legendary civil rights attorney, William Kunstler. Back then, Kunstler was considered one of the country's most famous lawyers, in large part because of his work representing controversial clients, such as members of the Black Panther Party, the Catonsville Nine, and the Chicago Seven. Kunstler and Kuby worked together for more than a decade, representing everyone from civil rights activists to members of the Gambino crime family. The pair became so well-known, they also made an unofficial cameo in a certain 90s cult classic film. At one hour, 41 minutes in the Big Lebowski, in the Malibu police station scene, as the dude is slammed across the desk, he utters the, the greatest words ever uttered in the, in the history of, of cinema. I want a fucking, I want lawyer, a fucking man. lawyer, man. I want, I want Bill Kunstler. Ron Kuby. If you can't tell already, Ron Kuby is a dynamic character. He has a long gray ponytail and easygoing demeanor. He loves to talk and is the kind of guy that will keep you on the phone for hours. He has a page on his legal website dedicated to his dogs, which he proudly refers to as 
his law dogs. But his resume speaks for itself. It would be unwise not to take Ron Kuby seriously. Bill ended up representing Filiberto Ojeda Rios. I ended up representing Filiberto's lieutenant, if you will, uh, Luis Alfredo Colon Osorio. You know, I think it was Warren Zevon who said, lawyers, guns, and money. And we had at least two out of the three. We had lawyers and we had money. And probably some people had guns too, but that wasn't a part of, of the legal defense. So we were prepared to fight the government. And the government was not prepared for a legal challenge. It's important to note that Ron's comments are the recollections of a criminal defense attorney who argued on behalf of the Macheteros. But he provides unique and rare insight into what went on behind the scenes as those involved in the Wells Fargo heist went to trial. Ron says day one of court proceedings turned out to be nothing short of a circus. We showed up to, to the most massive military-style presence I had ever seen in any case, ever. You know, they had black clad snipers on the rooftop. They had shooting positions taken up all around the courthouse. They put in brand new concrete barriers to prevent suicide bombers. Everybody had an automatic rifle. The Wells Fargo case was a big opportunity for federal prosecutors. For years, the FBI in Puerto Rico and prosecutors in the U.S had been trying to prosecute Los Macheteros members for acts of pro-state violence. More often than not, they'd come up short. Even when the group took credit for an illegal event, agents had a hard time identifying those directly responsible. Just ask former FBI agent Bob Heibel, who spent years investigating Los Macheteros. The FBI didn't have the capability to penetrate these organizations because they didn't have the sufficient bilingual agents to put in San Juan to do the job. They were going through the motions with this and leaving it all up to the police of Puerto Rico. In many ways, the Wells Fargo robbery changed all that. The Macheteros committing the Wells Fargo heist was one of the biggest mistakes they ever made. The reason is that in Puerto Rico, the legal system had been so penetrated by leftist attorneys, that it was almost impossible to get a conviction on a perpetrator that you had caught in the act. The FBI didn't catch the group in the act, but it did collect a mountain of circumstantial evidence, including hours of wiretapped conversations. It wasn't always easy to decipher what was said in the tapes, though. The Macheteros used a system of code names for nearly everything people, places, operations. Here's Hartford Current reporter Ed Mahoney. They always had crazy euphemisms for things like bank robberies were expropriations and that sort of thing. Nearly every Macheteros associate had at least one, if not five, pseudonyms. One member went by the nickname Frank. Another was known as Jumbo. Filiberto was Greco. As for its clandestine activities, the Macheteros preferred animals for code names. La Gaviota, which translates to seagull, was the name for the Muniz airbase bombing. El Chivo, Spanish for goat, 
was code for a plan to free and assassinate an incarcerated former machetero who was suspected of being an informant. As for Aguila Blanca, turns out there was more to that code name. Questioned by the government, FBI agent Jose Rodriguez testified about it in court. Now, during the course of your FBI electronic surveillance, were you able to determine where Aguila was? Yes, ma'am. And where is Aguila? On July the 13th, 1984, in the vehicle of Filberto Ojeda Rios, a conversation was intercepted. They were discussing Aguila and the fact that his female companion wishes to be with him. They mentioned that the female companion is on probation, and they state in this conversation that Cuba is an attraction for him. It's real because he has been there. And who is Aguila? Aguila is Victor Manuel Herrera. In those wiretapped conversations, agents also learned the group was beginning to fracture. They'd hear members bickering about how to spend the money, when to take credit for the heist, or whether the Cubans took too much of the cash. The fighting got so bad at one point during the summer of 1984, the group had split into two factions, one of which included Juan Zagara and Filiberto Ojeda Rios. In one exchange, Filiberto can be heard discussing how he was actually voted out of the Macheteros Central Committee, the internal governing body that he helped found. And the guy who's a, a member of the Cuban Intelligence Service, the guy that makes the whole thing work is Ojeda. And they demoted him, you know, which is ridiculous because without him, there's no organization. Basically, an organization famous for its meticulous planning and secretive structures had devolved into chaos. And the FBI? They took full advantage of the situation. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and last on the business. I understand now. 
She's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible Uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The United States of America versus Victor Manuel Herrera et al. was a legal slog. A long uphill battle with twists, turns, and a seemingly endless number of procedural delays. Take as an example this fact. The first hearing in the case took place on September 3rd, 1985. As for the actual trial, opening arguments didn't happen until 1988. There was a massive quantity of evidence against the defendants in terms of sheer volume, not quality, but volume. And what I mean by that, there were thousands of hours of wiretap communications that had been intercepted over a period of years. There were 45 separate searches, so there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pages of documents. So there was a massive quantity of evidence, 
But the government was amazingly sloppy. It didn't seem like any of them were preparing to process it in a way that would be usable at trial. Kuby says even with the primary suspect nowhere to be found, there was still plenty to litigate. There were motions to have the trial moved to Puerto Rico, where almost all of the defendants lived and where defense attorneys said they were less likely to face bias. Those were denied. There were issues with the nature of the material seized from the defendants' homes. What was fair game under the warrant? What was personal? What was just the FBI grabbing anything and everything it could in case it might matter later? They basically took everything. And some of it was was just hysterically funny. Out of my client's home, I, I think they took a tape, a videotape called Jazzercise Your Thighs, which was an exercise video, like, like the Macheteros are going to squeeze America to death between their powerful knees. What possible evidence could this be? They took children's coloring books and they took everything that made any reference to Puerto Rico. All the history and literature and books on or by or about Puerto Rico, all of the Puerto Rican flags, every scrap of anything that made reference to the thousands of year history about this place, everything was taken as evidence of terrorism. Perhaps the biggest dilemma, though, was the issue of those wiretaps. The defense filed motions to throw a large portion of that evidence out saying it had been improperly sealed and that, in some cases, federal agents had listened to conversations without recording them, and then they lied about it. The FBI was really, really, really good at collecting eavesdropping tapes and wiretapping and paying attention to the tapes and collecting intelligence information. They were really bad at adhering to the requirements of the wiretapping law which meant that at the expiration of a particular warrant, the tapes had to be sealed within 30 days. What sealed actually means is is exactly that. They are put in plastic bags. There is a seal put on them that contains uh, the dates, the times, the particulars of the tape. You can't open the bag without breaking the seal. And the purpose is to maintain the integrity of the tapes for use at trial and also to make sure the FBI isn't doing what we know they did, which is sharing these things with other people who have an interest in the Macheteros who might want to listen. And the government totally screwed that up. A judge agreed. More than half of the wiretap tapes were deemed inadmissible. And the government's case against a number of Los Macheteros was split into two. The trial for half of the group, which included Filiberto Ojeda Rijos, was delayed while an appellate court reviewed the tapes. The trials for the other half moved forward. Filiberto was let out on bail after spending 32 months in jail. Well, the question was, where is Filiberto going to go? So Richard Harvey, who at that time was serving as co-counsel to Kunstler, said, well, he can live with us. He can live with the lawyers up in Hartford in our law commune. What, what could be better than living 
living with your lawyer, I ask you. And he did. He moved in. He's really happy to be out of prison. And he is just an amazing human being. I mean, first of all, he's a revolutionary to the, the marrow of his bones. He's a Puerto Rican patriot. But he can do other things. He can play the guitar. He can play the trumpet. He can do things around the house that need to be done that he was willing to do because Filiberto fundamentally was also a communist in the best sense of that word. He knew that he always had to contribute through his labor to everything and everywhere he was. And he knew that all labor had dignity. And so he'd cook, he'd cook for the house. And he was a fantastic cook, you know, making up rice and beans and mofongo and other Puerto Rican delicacies. For me, I, I recognize that, that this was a, a great man of Puerto Rico. I had no idea how great, and I had no idea ultimately that he would have a legacy as early as he did. But I, I knew that, you know, this is like Che Guevara, you know, grilling up a cheeseburger for me. Filiberto remained in that Harford Law House for several months and then returned to Puerto Rico, where he cut off his ankle bracelet and jumped bail. More on that later. Like his mentor, Juan Zagara spent over two years in jail before he was granted bail. Unlike his mentor, however, he stayed put. His case, along with four additional members of Los Macheteros, went to trial. The trial relied less heavily on wiretapped evidence, in part because federal prosecutors had flipped two witnesses. Kenneth Cox, a friend of Juan's who admitted to helping him acquire fake IDs, and Anna Gasson, Juan's former lover who laundered some of the stolen money. Now, what did Mr. Segarra relate to you at that time? He related to me that a robbery happened in Hartford. What did he say happened to the money? The money went to Springfield in cars. Did he tell you what happened to the money after it got to Springfield? Nope. Did Mr. Segarra tell you what happened to Mr. Herrera? Yes, he did. What did he say happened to Mr. Herrera? Well, one time he told me Mr. Herrera was taken on the night of the robbery from Hartford to Springfield on a motorcycle. And what happened after that? He told me he was taken to Boston, then to Mexico. Defense attorneys railed at the use of Kenneth Cox as a witness, calling him, quote, an accomplice, an addict, a man with a criminal record who's being paid for his testimony and kept out of prison for his testimony. For what it's worth, all of the above was true. Cox was arrested 21 times in 25 years and actually went to the FBI about Wells Fargo the day after he was arrested on a shoplifting charge. Juan Zagara's ex-mistress, Anna Gasson, was a far more compelling witness. Like Juan, she graduated from Harvard, where she studied biology. Her testimony went on for days and reads like a novel. I would say there's two major reasons, which for me are part and parcel of the same thing, which is that I loved this man and respected the values that he shared with me. It was that respect, which was also part of the reason why you loved him? Most probably, yes. I 
Don't know. Anna Gasson was initially charged as an accomplice in the Wells Fargo case, but was granted immunity in exchange for her testimony, and for good reason. She claimed that Juan asked her to keep about $35,000 in a trunk under her bed, which she did. She said Juan also asked her to transport money across the U.S.-Mexico border, which she didn't. Did Juan Segarra ask you to become involved in this plan to transport money to Mexico? Yes. Would you tell us, please, what he wanted you to do? Well, there was a couple that was supposed to drive the camping truck across, and he wanted the couple to be non-Hispanic, to be white. By a couple, you mean a man and a woman? Man and woman, yes. He had already had the man who was supposed to drive across, and there was a woman who was supposed to come from Puerto Rico to drive across, and she couldn't because of some health reasons or something. What's more, Anna testified that Juan had admitted he was behind the Wells Fargo heist. She said he also asked her to deposit cash into her bank account and write checks to people in Puerto Rico, some of whom were later found to be aliases of Machetero's members. Then there was his own written account of Wells Fargo, a manuscript that Juan hoped would one day be turned into a screenplay. You told us the purpose, as you understood it for the writing, was to be made into a movie. It was going to be turned into a screenplay by someone else. So his objective was to write down what exactly had happened so that someone else who was a writer could then turn it into a screenplay. What I saw was his version not the screenplay. Lawyers for the defense called Juan's manuscript questionable, saying it was a work of fiction and that key details didn't line up. But the testimony, along with some of the wiretapped evidence, did the trick. On April 11, 1989, Juan Zagara was convicted on 11 counts including aiding and abetting a robbery and helping to transport stolen funds. He was sentenced to 65 years in prison. The other men received varying sentences. Two were found guilty of conspiracy, another of conspiracy and the transport of stolen money. The last was completely exonerated. Filiberto, who was still on the lam, was sentenced to 55 years in absentia. Fundamentally, the Wells Fargo case was an attempt to criminalize the Puerto Rican armed struggle independence movement, but to do so in a place where there would not be so many sympathizers to that movement. After the Wells Fargo verdicts, questions shifted from who was responsible and whether they'd be caught to a debate that has continued for the better part of 40 years. Were members of the Macheteros violent terrorists who robbed the bank? Or were they at war with an occupying force and within their rights under international law? This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent 
telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
In most cases, a crime story usually ends with a trial and conviction. But this is unlike most cases. It's complex and politically charged. It's not simply about a robbery. And to truly understand the surprising fate that would befall a number of the Macheteros, including Victor, Juan, and Filiberto, we need to take a step back, several decades in fact, and look at their efforts in the context of a larger movement, one of mass protests, clandestine organizations, and open rebellion in the halls of Congress. Those movements date back to the moment of the Spanish-American War, when there were already folks who wanted to seek independence in the way that Cuba was seeking independence. Dr. Yarimar Bonilla-Ramos, who spoke in the last episode, is an expert in Caribbean politics. She also runs a center for Puerto Rican studies at Hunter College in New York. That current was always sustained and always had important figures, most notably, of course, Pedro Albizu Campos. Pedro Albizu Campos is often called the father of Puerto Rico's modern independence movement. He was born just a few years before the U.S. annexed the island and spent a majority of his life either fighting for independence or in prison for his efforts. Here's retired FBI agent Bob Heibel. What happens is that a uh, nationalist group is formed. It's called the Nationalist Party of Puerto Rico. Albizu Campos becomes the leader of that group. They're quite militant. They participate in elections in 1930. They're defeated, significantly defeated. From then on, they turn to violence. Albizu Campos was a man of bold action. He led a strike on Puerto Rico's light and power company for its alleged monopoly on the island. He was a Harvard-educated lawyer who represented sugarcane workers in a lawsuit against the sugar industry. In 1937, roughly one year into a 10-year prison sentence for a conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government, peaceful protests by his nationalist party turned deadly. The Ponce massacre is one of the clear examples of criminalization and state violence against the pro-independence movement. That's University of Illinois professor Dr. Jose Attiles. It took place in the context of the incarceration of Pedro Bisu Campos and all the leadership of the Nationalist Party. The new leadership of the party organized a demonstration and the Puerto Rican state and with the support of the U.S. denied the permit for this public demonstration in which, you know, it was just a political rally. And when they canceled the authorization to have that rally, the insular police now the Puerto Rican police, just started shooting. And around 20 people died. Around 100 were injured. No one was arrested or formally held accountable for the Ponce massacre. By the time Albizu Campos was released from prison in 1947, tensions had started to boil over. People were angry about the ongoing police repression as well as a controversial gag law. By October of 1950, Thousands of pro-independence activists had had enough and staged revolts in towns and cities across Puerto Rico. In Washington, D.C., two men attempted to assassinate President Harry Truman in the name of independence. One of the men was killed, the other jailed, along with Albizu Campos and thousands of others. Then, four years later... In Washington, D.C., ruthless, fanatic violence erupted in the halls of Congress. 
three men and a woman believed to be members of the Puerto Rican nationalist gang that in November 1950 attempted the assassination of President Truman opened fire from the visitor's gallery of the House of Representatives. The attack by Rafael Cancel, Irvin Flores, Andres Figueroa, and Lolita Lebron was deemed a continuation of the revolts. Five congressmen were wounded. They were not intending to kill members of Congress, but they were aware of the possibility that they might die. So in that context, they were trying to get the international and the U.S. attention towards the case of Puerto Rico and what was happening in Puerto Rico with the repression and criminalization, but also with the process, a sham process of decolonization. Lolita Lebron said, quote, I did not come to kill anyone. I came to die for Puerto Rico. Like Albizu Campos, Lebron and her compatriots received lengthy prison sentences. And these people become heroes to certain elements in Puerto Rico. And as a result of this criminal activity, uh, the Nationalist Party is prosecuted in court and its leaders go to prison. Albizu Campos was released from prison in 1964 after being pardoned by Puerto Rico's governor. He died a year later from what many believe to be the effects of radiation poisoning. The Nationalist Party, as a party, ceases to exist. However, the adherents of the Nationalist Party continue their activities relative to violent terrorist methods. Bob Heibel says the nationalist movements of the 40s and 50s deeply inspired Filiberto Ojeda Rios. He idolized Albizu Campos and left his career as a musician with the intention of picking up where his predecessor had left off. Additionally, both he and Juan Segarra have said they believe that the group's violent conflict with the U.S. government is perfectly legal under international law, that they're not terrorists, they're fighting for self-determination. It's a point I raised with Dr. Attilas. This is a really interesting question that international lawyers would debate for hours. In theory, they were in their right, right? We have the UN Resolution 15-14-50 that recognize the right of the people to self-determination. There is another UN resolutions, a series of resolutions that acknowledge the right of people under colonial condition to pursue the self-determination. Here's Dr. Bonilla again. I think it's hard to say how Puerto Ricans viewed Los Macheteros in a kind of homogenous way, because I think there were lots of different views about them. For some folks, they were kind of like boogeymen. They were, you know, bandits hidden in the mountains and shadowy figures. For others, they were heroes and celebrated. Dr. Bonilla is too young to remember any of the group's more violent operations, but says she always understood that there were Puerto Ricans hidden away avoiding what she called the repression of the U.S. government. The violence that I remembered was more the violence of surveillance, the carpeteo, the Quintel Pro politics, the FBI. Like My memory of the independence movement is of a movement repressed, surveilled, and criminalized. And to me, that's the violence that, that I most fervently remember. When I first heard about the Wells Fargo case as a 16-year-old, it didn't make much sense. Why would Victor Herrera steal money he couldn't keep? Even more puzzling 
Why would he agree to leave his family and live the rest of his life as a fugitive? Years later, as I've looked into the story myself, those questions have evolved into a different frame of thinking. Reflecting on the facts of the case within a historical context, what the Macheteros were striving for at its core was really no different from what the forefathers of America did during the 18th century. Think about this. We had colonists fighting, robbing the British of arms and money, blowing things up, all in the name of independence. It's the same ideology. And while Juan Zagara has said that he knew there was a good chance they'd all end up, quote, in prison or dead, I don't believe for one minute he didn't think there was another potential outcome. Because in 1979, just a few years before Wells Fargo, then-President Jimmy Carter did the unthinkable. He commuted the sentences of Lolita LeBron and three others, including Oscar Collazo, one of the men who attempted to assassinate President Truman. After his release, Collazo told NBC that, decades later, he had zero regrets. No remorse at all. Wow. Fighting for uh, the freedom of a country, there is nothing to, to have remorse of. I'm more committed than never with every minute of my existence. Ms. LeBron was asked if she would use violence again. I will do what is necessary for the liberation of Puerto Rico. You see, clemency was an option for the Macheteros. And they all knew this. Especially if there was someone powerful enough who found their sentences unfair and believed that their initial fight was for a just cause. And as it turns out, there was someone. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear. Next time on White Eagle. Today we're going to focus on the president's decision to offer clemency to members of a Puerto Rican terrorist group. A presidential order ignites a firestorm in Congress. White Eagle is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Additional writing by our supervising producer, Julia Weaver. Our associate producer and script supervisor is Darby Masters. Audio editing and mixing by Christian Bowman. Voice acting by Daniel Colon, Julia Weaver, and Abu Zafar. Our series theme, Forms Regal or Grand, is written by Aaron Kaufman. Thanks to Arlene Santana and Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. And a very special thank you to Northern Light Productions for allowing us to use clips from the documentary, The Last American Colony. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.